So first, a confession. I am an ethical critic of literature. In other words, I hold that our understanding of narrative works of art, like novels, is not independent of our evaluations of their ethical outlooks. More specifically, as Wayne Booth put it, the ethical critic is committed to the claim that, and I quote, when responsible readers of powerful stories engage in rational inquiry about their ethical value, they can produce results that deserve the tricky label knowledge, end quote. It is sometimes thought that ethical criticism must be suspect because the critic simply brings to bear her own ethical judgments and preferences to the work of art, and that can hardly illuminate the qualities of the work itself. I would say that criticism that proceeds in that way is simply bad criticism. The sensitive ethical critic operates instead with the loving gaze described by Martha Nussbaum in Love's Knowledge, a gaze that considers a work with sustained attention and at the level of its essential particularity, which leaves the critic vulnerable to the ethical world of the work itself. Now, that vulnerability is not naivete, but an openness to a kind of dialogue or conversation. Admittedly, there's no external standpoint from which to judge whether the results of some particular act of criticism or ethical criticism in general deserve the tricky label knowledge. The possibility is always there that the critic is simply presenting her ethical or aesthetic prejudices. The standard for success for any kind of criticism is the following. Do the acts of reading that the criticism sparks themselves count as bearers of truth? That is, might the reader of such criticism through reading become a better reader of the literary works that that criticism ranges over? and perhaps, at the limit, a better reader of literature as such. Now, since the ethical critic holds, as I said above, that um, appreciating and evaluating ethical outlooks is part of the task of reading narrative literature, the critic hopes and intends that her readers become better interpreters and appreciators, not only of the aesthetic qualities of this literature, but also its ethical qualities. I want to engage in a thought experiment. Imagine that um, there's one capacity which is the appreciation of ethical outlooks in literature, or if you don't like the talk of outlooks, um, qualities of character uh, and human descriptions of human circumstance, um, whether people's lives are going well or badly. Suppose that there's one capacity for appreciating that in the work of literature. And a distinct capacity that's the appreciation of these things in what literature aims to represent. People, lives, communities, human possibilities. If we had these two kinds of capacities, that would actually entail that there are certain words that we use, like the word character, um, that have senses that are linked only by analogy. So on the one hand, we would have the personae that we find in literary works. And on the other hand, there are the qualities that make people knowable to themselves and to others. And if we took this approach, a novel would be like a work of realistic anthropomorphic sculpture. It would aim to represent a subject matter that exists in one way in an alien mode, one that leaves only analogical relationships between the representative work and what it represents. I'm making some claims about sculpture there that I'm not going to defend. If that were the case, we would want a new sense of the word character that picked out what appears in the literary work by contrast to what appears in our own lives. 
In fact, it would be more helpful if we just had another word for it, like persona. Now, I think we're in a position to ask whether there are really these two distinct capacities of, call it, reading character. And what the ethical critic is saying is, no, there are not two distinct capacities in, well, there are not two capacities distinct in this way. And the proof of that is just in the many interrelations and the two kinds of reading that are involved. And I think we saw in the last talk by Lauren uh, some good reasons for thinking that um, Jane Austen is very seriously interested in this connection between the reading of her own works and the reading of uh, character within the works. Now let me address a potential objection to that thought, which is fairly obvious. Of course you have to have special kinds of knowledge to properly appreciate a narrative work in all its dimensions. The claim is not that a narrative work like a novel is being reduced to a set of uh, ethical qualities um, as if it weren't itself an aesthetic object with its own integrity. At the minimum, and now I'm just thinking about on the side of readers, you need exposure to a set of cultural practices that make a narrative work intelligible as something to be read. I think this is something that we don't appreciate fully, that the act of reading a novel or another narrative work is something that we're uh, inaugurated into um, as a kind of practice. And you also need an acquaintance with exemplars of sufficient variety before these capacities can really be developed. But when it comes to character itself, that is the thing that's real in the world, an ethical, an ethical critic holds that this kind of character is legible in literary form as it is in what we call real life. In virtue of the same capacity for reflection on what matters to us as human beings, what motivates us, what is good for us, what destroys us, what we can bear. And that's the kind of ethical critic I am. Now, the example I've been using just now is the example of reading character, but of course there are many tasks involved in evaluating the ethical outlook of a narrative work that goes well beyond that. Yeah, even though probably reading character is one of the central ones. Here's something an ethical critic isn't. An ethical critic is not a moralist in the sense of a would-be moral educator. There's obviously so much more to acting well than having a keen sense for reading people, for instance. Everything I have said is consistent with the idea, and I actually do think this is true, that relatively bad people might be relatively good readers in this sense. The confident artist has to know at least some of the secrets of the human heart. In fact, the idea I'm defending is consistent with the thought, and I'm not sure I accept this, that being more reflective in the way that uh, this sort of reading might encourage might actually be a hindrance to acting well. It might paralyze you in various ways or confuse you, um, maybe because you can't get to the end of this process of really learning how to appreciate ethical outlooks, and so you're stuck in the middle and you would have been better off had you just stayed naive and at the beginning. The thing that I'm trying to bracket is the thought that reading narrative literature well could be purely a matter of assessing it at arm's length from your own ethical commitments. In fact, I think it's perfectly natural to think that we have reasons to want other people to read good literature. But what are the reasons? I think they have to do with wanting other people to be better acquainted with the truth, not because we want them to be dutiful citizens or amiable companions. 
So this is where I depart from some of Nussbaum's claims about the value of literature. Let's follow this thought for a moment. Plato thought that being a good citizen was a matter of being oriented to the truth. If you agree with him, then you must surely agree that he had an excellent idea to banish all narrative literature. If you agree with me, the consumption of such literature is a risky business, and um, if you have a certain conception of the kinds of risks that are acceptable in society, then uh, we should do just as he did. So I want to agree with one half of the platonic thought that this matters uh, for our own lives and for our own ways of thinking. If we think that exposing ourselves to the risk is worth it, I think we can still hope for the best in our encounters with literature. So I think it's a false choice um, on the one hand to have the extreme of platonic scrutiny um, and on the other hand uh, the everything goes attitude of the Wildean aesthete. So uh, I want to carve this middle road between Plato and Wilde, Oscar Wilde. Um, uh, where the middle road is characterized by the thought that we're in the business of truth, um, moral truth, for, for example, um, in reading literature, but that we can't reduce the, that uh, truth or truthfulness just to um, a set of knowable ethical precepts that we can then bring to the narrative literature itself. So I wanted to make this confession because it's against this background that I want to make some remarks about realism, to use those remarks to talk a little bit about pessimism and realism as they feature in the novels of Michel Welbeck, in particular his 2015 novel, uh, Submission, Submission, and to evaluate a certain claim that's made about that novel and Welbeck's oeuvre generally, um, to subject that claim to some scrutiny, uh, and then to, to conclude with some remarks about the contraction of moral imagination, partly as an exercise in thinking about what happens when we read bad novels. And um, if you are committed, as I am, to the stuff about truth, if you, if you want to agree halfway with Plato, then you can't just point to the good stuff and say, here's where you can get closer. You are committed to the other claim that you can get further away from the truth by engaging with narrative art. And that's something that ethical critics have not said a lot about. They tend to focus on the happy experience of learning. Um, if you can learn from this experience, you should also be able to mislearn, to unlearn. So first, first the remarks about realism. So not all narrative literature aims at being realistic in the following narrow sense. It need not aim at representing the world as it is presently, or as it was recently in a given place or society. Even fantastic literature, in order to be intelligible, this came up with the talk yesterday about fairy tales, um, even fantastic literature aims at engaging with a picture of human life, which is perhaps presumed just to be part of the common understanding between the author and the reader, and then that understanding is questioned or evaluated through the differences that are portrayed in the fantastic literary world. And I think that engagement is deeply realistic in the broader sense that it's concerned with what I'm calling human truth. Allegory is a deeply realistic form in this enlarged sense of realism. Even works that are realistic in the narrow sense in depicting what we might call the texture of human life in a given time and place are interested in human possibility, 
Just to write narrative literature, to offer it as a fit object of reading, means that the author wishes to close the following question. Why are these depicted human actualities worth sustained attention? I don't mean anything high-minded by that. The author of the airport bookshop thriller wants the reader to do more than read the first and last pages to know what has taken place. So the particular actualities that are depicted in a novel are not the sole object of interest, even when those actualities correspond quite closely to what the reader may presume takes place in the novel setting. We don't read Pride and Prejudice to be better acquainted with the goings-on of Regency England. However, because of gaps in time and space between us and the novel's writing and initial publication, we do happen, most of us, I think, happen to become acquainted with Regency England precisely in this way, and that's an accidental consequence of our immersion in the novel's world. We should not be annoyed when Austen omits to tell us which regiment was stationed in Meryton, as we would if we were reading history. If we're good readers of Pride and Prejudice, we are also not annoyed that the war that explains the raising of this regiment is never mentioned, not even gestured toward. The subject matter of Pride and Prejudice is not the whole of what went on in that time and place, but a highly specific set of human experiences, and these experiences have proven sufficient in the past two centuries to be absorbing to many of Austin's readers. So our interest in reading novels is human truth, and that is made accessible but not exhausted by the specificities of any given novel. I'm glad that Thomas is nodding because <laughs> he wrote the best book on this topic. So in the rest of my remarks today, I want to evaluate the following claim. And that claim is that the novels of Michel Welbeck are worth reading because they are fearlessly realistic in the sense of depicting what our world is like. I want to argue that this is an insufficient reason to take these novels to be worth reading. I am not going to try to convince you that you should not read Welbeck, but I have to admit it's tempting to do so. <laughs> So my focus will be on Soumission, published in French to quite a lot of celebrity on the day of the Charlie Hebdo massacre, and translated very quickly into English as Submission. The book, I think, was surprising to many of its readers because Welbeck had once been sued for saying that Islam was a stupid religion, and a stereotypical Islamic terror plot features in one of his earlier novels. Submission, of course, is a translation of the word Islam. And it is not wrong to say that the book is about Islam. In the novel, an Islamic party takes over French political life by conventional electoral means and is ultimately embraced by a wide range of the social and political elite of near future France, so set a few years into the future. At the end of the novel, our narrator Francois chooses conversion to Islam, just as his hero Guizmond chose conversion to Catholicism as a response to the drudgery of the life of a civil servant, out of a deep pessimism, and out of an expectation of something better. In the novel, Francois first tries to follow in Mismont's footsteps, going to the pilgrimage site of Roquemadour, but he finds that he cannot choose Catholicism. Now, the novel strongly suggests that the appeal to Francois of polygamy is the difference. It's why he can't choose Catholicism and he wants to choose Islam. Say about that what you will. Still, moderate Islam, as the term goes, seems to be portrayed in the novel as a serious force for social and political order, a corrective to libertinism and decadence. 
as in much of his earlier work, religion is an afterthought even in submission. Welbeck's eye is instead turned principally to what he sees as a decaying state of French society, and he talks about this copiously in interviews. That is why one hears or reads from critics that his novels are distinctively and perhaps uniquely aimed at revealing uncomfortable truths. So just to pick up on a few of the review blurbs at the front of the Picador edition, David Sexton writes, he is a writer with a gift for telling the truth unlike any other in our time. Mark Heim writes, what Welbeck has done in submission is hold up a mirror to his readers. And this is a frequent theme, again, of the reviews that the, the truths that are being told are somehow about ourselves. Some other aspects of this alleged truth-telling, however, have to do with the debility of institutions. And in submission, one of the main targets of scrutiny is the university. Francois is a Sorbonne professor. He's caught in the swirl of university politics. But I think even this attention to detail in characterizing an institution is something of a red herring. Um, the relationships that Francois has with his colleagues are shaped by this professional role, but their conversations are all about the shifting political landscape. Submission is a doggedly political novel. Now, the question I, I want to ask here is, does this political focus secure its status as realistic? So a little bit more about the plot. The main political figure in the novel is Mohammed Ben Abbas. He's the head of this moderate Islamic party, and he's described as a Muslim de Gaulle. As readers, however, we never get to see Ben Abbas firsthand. And Francois is ultimately not very interested in politics, except he gets these tutorials from his suspiciously well-informed friend Alain. Welbeck's interest seems to be in how ordinary people to use that term loosely, react to the seismic shifts that are inaugurated by this election victory, which is figured in the novel as a victory for the soul of France itself. So here are some examples. Secular Jews like Miriam, who's Francois's student girlfriend at the start of the novel, flee to Israel. Alain retires to the countryside along with his wife, who is a colleague in the same department um, with Francois, but who mainly features in the novel for her remarkable abilities in the kitchen. I, again, won't comment further on that. Um, other university staff take up the offer to stay and teach in a newly reorganized Islamic Sorbonne. So the plot works out a set of thoughts on this religious political theme of secularism, and that's been the topic of nearly all of the reviews and the criticism on the novel. But I think the work itself is plainly concerned with the mental life and perspective of Francois. He's our witness to these larger events. So I think claims about the novel's realism turn on the following two questions. Is Francois's view of the world reasonable or worth our attention? And second, what might, be, what might we as readers learn from seeing a possessor of this worldview respond to the specific events that are depicted in the novel? I think the second of these questions about the events is necessary to answer the first about the worldview itself. So I want to begin with the events by offering a close reading of a, um, a handful of um, the most important moments in the novel. Um, ultimately, to address that first question about the worldview, I want to enlist the help of a comparison to Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, which is, I think, still the undisputed classic of the subgenre of the novel we might call the misanthrope's lament, to which submission evidently also belongs. So readers of Submission have observed that Francois fits the type of Welbeck's previous narrators. 
In some, he's a disaffected, hedonistic civil servant with a difficult family history that very curiously resembles Welbeck's own. Indeed, a character named Michel Welbeck features in one of his earlier novels. So this is not being hidden by any means by the author. Against that background of this being yet another one of Welbeck's men, um, I want to consider three moments in the second half of the novel after the election um, is in progress that help to establish Francois as a distinct personality who's acting in the face of this political transformation. And I think it's useful to work backward from the end. So the first scene I want to consider is the climax of the novel, where Francois chooses conversion. He is swayed by the promise of three young wives and the sight of a particularly grotesque older colleague who has just made the same choice for the same reason. The sexual marketplace that infuriates so many of Welbeck's narrators has received its final defeat. It's not through the discovery of cloning, as was the case in um, Welbeck's The Possibility of an Island, Rather, here, it's through political religious fiat. So this is how Francois reflects in the final pages, and I quote. Uh, this is, again, from the uh, Stein translation, uh, Picador edition. The reception was winding down, and the night was surprisingly balmy. I walked home without really thinking, in a sort of reverie. Yes, my intellectual life was finished, though I could still participate in vague colloquia, and live on my savings and my pension, but I started to realize, and this was a real novelty, that life might actually have more to offer. Now, the remainder of the novel is more of this reverie, and it's a fine example of Welbeck's commitment to presenting the events from his narrator's perspective. First, Francois imagines how the conversion ceremony will take place, then he looks forward to his acceptance into his position at the reorganized Sorbonne. And then there's a cocktail party. There's lots of alcohol in this Islamic France, which is interesting. <laughs> and, then, and then Francois envisions um, how the term will start a few months later. And then he encounters the students from whom his wives will be chosen. I quote again. Each of these girls, no matter how pretty, would be happy and proud if I chose her and would feel honored to share my bed. They would be worthy of love, and I, for my part, would come to love them. Rather like my father a few years before, I'd be given another chance, and it would be the chance at a second life. With very little connection to the old one, I would have nothing to mourn." And that's the end of the novel. I think there's something really startling in the claim that there would be very little connection to Francois's previous life because the novel begins with Francois telling us that he chooses his girlfriends annually from among his students, passing from one to the next as they inevitably get bored of him. Sexual fantasy at the end of the novel remains his driving motivation. The difference, though, is that in the new Islamic order, Francois is guaranteed the submission of these women. And it's this submission of women to men that is emphasized for the bulk of the novel, not the submission of France and the EU to Islam, or the submission of various characters to religious belief. So the convert, Robert Rediger, who, who rehires Francois, makes this point explicitly because he compares the worshipful attitude of Muslims to what is described in the story of O, which is pointed out nicely by Adam Schatz in his LRB review. So much of the commentary uh, on submission focused on the critique of decadent libertinism. 
the way that Welbeck seems to point to the lack of structures of meaning-making in early 21st century laicized France. In this culminating passage, we see that Welbeck is not imagining, on Francois's behalf, a future in which the transcendent order of Islam provides what was lacking before. Indeed, wherever theology is mentioned in the novel, it is in terms of what is more credible to believers, believers who are described as just the very people who populate this, this landscape. Uh, Islam, in particular, is praised for avoiding the metaphysical excesses of Christianity, such as the doctrine of the real presence of Christ. I think there's an interesting echo here of Ibn Tufail's great 12th century philosophical novel, Hai Ibn Yaqsan, where our hero, abandoned on an island at a young age, teaches himself, through observation, a version of the Aristotelian philosophy. When Hai is discovered, um, and is, is brought back into society, as it were, he finds nothing rationally objectable, objectionable about Islam, and he chooses to become a Sufi. So for Francois, conversion, that is to say submission, is submission to his own desires within a system that actually supports their fulfillment. Libertinism is what happens when society abandons constraints on sexual desire. But that state of affairs is, from the point of view represented in the novel, only the undesirable symmetry of male and female freedom. The imagined future, seen as liberation from dissatisfaction, is just a reconfiguration of power that's made possible by powerful external social forces, not a reconfiguration of one's own values. As Micah Meadowbrook wrote just last week in Providence Magazine, Welbeck is a, quote, peace be upon and with him prophet of modern liberalism, end quote. I disagree, however, with Meadowbrook and also with Adam Schatz in that LRB review I mentioned that in submission, Welbeck is envisioning Islam as offering a more effective assignment of meaning to inevitable human conflict or more generally in human life. In my view, and through my reading of this concluding passage, meaning-making has just dropped out of the picture altogether. Now, we should take note of the fact that Francois pursues sexual pleasure because he thinks it's all that's left to him. So as he says at one point, neither the life of the mind nor the social life are satisfying, so all that's left is the life of the body, which provides him this kind of intermittent pleasure. So I think here we're in a strong position, unlike in other parts of the novel, to distinguish between the narrator, who's got this Montaigne-like attention to his bodily ailments, which fill him with disgust. Now, where Montaigne was filled with wonder, Francois is filled with disgust at himself. So we've got that perspective, this very inwardly turned perspective, and then what we might begin to call the moral perspective of the novel itself. So we're being given with this highly specific point of view, which is to be sure heavily satirized by Welbeck, also a sense of the alternative possibilities that lie beyond that perspective. Here's what I think submission tells us. The present social conditions entail that people like Francois exist. Their grievance is real, and we, the readers, might, if our families and our circumstances were different, be just like him. And I've here borrowed a phrase from Dostoevsky, to which I will return later. In light of what I've argued submission means in submission, which is to say a submission to one's desires, let me turn now to the second moment in the novel I want to discuss, which is the profound anticlimax where Francois tries to follow in Wiesmont's footsteps. He explains to us his motivations. I quote, I was incapable of living for myself. Who else did I have to live for? Humanity didn't interest me. It disgusted me, actually. 
I didn't think of human beings as my brothers, especially not when I looked at some particular subset of human beings, such as the French, or my former colleagues. And yet, in an unpleasant way, I couldn't help seeing that these human beings were just like me, and it was this very resemblance that made me avoid them. I should have found a woman to marry. That was the classic time-honored solution. In the end, Wiesmoz had taken another path. He had chosen the more radical exoticism of religion. But that path still left me just as perplexed as the other." End quote. A few months later, Francois's despair reaches a kind of crisis point, which has a sort of physiological realization. I quote again, the night of January 19th, I burst into unexpected tears and couldn't stop crying. In the morning, as dawn rose over Le Kremlin Bicetre, I decided to return to Ligogé Abbey, where Wiesmons had taken his monastic vows. End quote. This visit turns out to be inconsequential. Like Wiesmons, Francois is forced to smoke outside the abbey, and that's where his next musings come when he's sort of walking around the outside. I no longer knew the meaning of my presence in this place. For a moment, it would appear to me weakly, then just as soon it would disappear. In any case, it clearly had little to do with Wiesmons anymore." End quote. So Francois leaves on the third day of his visit, and he goes to a bar that's 50 meters away from the monastery while he waits for a taxi, and he finds himself despising everyone around him, and he drinks himself into a stupor. No doubt we're being given here a, quite a powerful portrait of the way that self-hatred and hatred of humanity come together. But I want to insist that Welbeck goes a little bit further than this. Just as Wiesmans found he could not live with himself, Francois too tries to escape his despair by turning to the order of the monastery. The monastery is not simply a kind of stand-in for Christianity. It acts specifically as a place where memory and ritual organize desire, where a particular human appetite can be satisfied and made the central focus of one's life. That vision of the monastery as channel of appetite is, I think, the clearest legacy of Wiesmont's to Welbeck's own novel, taken as it is from the narrator of Arrebourg. But again, this seems very much to be not just Francois's limited perspective, which is being satirized and shown to be incomplete and uh, the product of his, uh, the um, source of his unhappiness. I think really we get here the perspective of the novel itself. The monastic life simply cannot compete with its secular alternatives. That's both a descriptive and a normative claim at the same time. We want to smoke, we want to drink, we want to have sex without consequences. Nothing else will really do. That's the human condition. So the brutal satire of Welbeck's novels, which purportedly reveals the emptiness and frustration of modern secular life, is not ultimately directed against the picture of the human that's presupposed by that life. Welbeck, in agreement with many of his reviewers, sees himself as holding up a mirror to his readers. If that is so, and we are disgusted by what we find in the minds of his characters, then the thought goes, we have good reason to be disgusted with ourselves. But why on earth must we accept these armchair sociological and anthropological views? On the line of reading that I'm pursuing, which is operating in full consciousness of the satirical quality of these novels, nevertheless, Welbeck is in a certain way brought so close to the perspective of his own narrators, not in terms of their experiences, but in terms of the presuppositions of their views, and even the presuppositions of their failures, that some of Welbeck's ambitions to truth-telling, I think, are undermined. 
Um, and here I'm following the same channel as my former colleague Ben Jeffrey's very good book, Antimatter, Michelle Welbeck and Depressive Realism, which was published in 2011 just after the map and the territory had appeared. And I want to acknowledge Ben's work, which led me to read, well, to attempt to read Welbeck in the first place. I made several failed attempts because it's hard for me to get through the books. The point I want to make is, I think, especially evident in the third moment in submission that I want to consider, one which I have seldom seen discussed in analysis of the novel. In fact, I haven't found any of the reviews. I think some of the criticism has taken note of it um, occasionally, but none of the reviews mention this moment or dwell on it. So this is right about the halfway point of the novel. The election is in progress. And Francois is responding to the violence that seems to be brewing, and he witnesses that as he flees Paris for the countryside. And he ha doesn't have a destination in mind. He just makes an impulse decision to get in his car and drive, and he stops for gas. And this is a long quote. The parking lot was deserted, and right away I could tell something wasn't right. I slowed to a crawl before I pulled up very carefully to the service station. Someone had shattered the window. The asphalt was covered with shards of glass. I got out of the car and walked inside. Someone had also smashed the door of the refrigerated case where they kept the cold drinks and knocked over the newspaper dispensers. I discovered the cashier lying on the floor in a pool of blood, her arms clasped over her chest in a pathetic gesture of self-defense. The silence was total. I walked over to the gas pumps, but they were turned off. Thinking I might be able to find some way of turning them on behind the register, I went back into the shop and stepped reluctantly over the body. But I didn't see anything that looked like an on switch. After a moment's hesitation, I helped myself to a tuna vegetable sandwich from the sandwich shelf, a non-alcoholic beer, and a Michelin guide. So put aside all the pornographic scenes with sex workers that dot the novel, which are typical fare in Welbeck's work, this moment in this abandoned gas station is to my mind the most repulsive of the novel. Francois wants to get gas on a snack. He takes the Michelin guide, since he might as well. A dead woman is lying on the floor. He doesn't really want to step over her body, but he does. Welbeck is playing with his reader's horror. How thoroughly does he want us to recoil? In the narrative, we simply pass on. What is Welbeck saying? It seems to be something like this, at first glance. In situations of extreme stress, our bodily needs are foremost. But Francois is not portrayed as experiencing extreme stress. He is simply on a drive, having calmly left Paris of his own accord. This is not the insight of King Lear going mad on the heath, thou art the thing itself, an accommodated man is no more but such a poor, bare, forked animal as thou art. The recognition of common humanity is just missing here. And it's not that Francois is discovering something dark about himself when social order has broken down and accommodations or advantages have been stripped away. The Michelin Guide, after all, is the epitome of social order, whether it is the red guide to restaurants or the green guide to regional attractions. As I said above, claims about the realism of submission turn on the following question. What might we learn about ourselves or about life from seeing Francois's pessimism collide with the events of the novel? I have been arguing that even read at its greatest remove from the narrator, submission is wholly occupied with a vision of human life 
in which the frustrations of life are a matter of the frustration of our inevitable natural appetites, and with the idea that a just social order would allow for the satisfaction of those appetites. All that is consistent with the bitterest satire, with thinking that Francois is foul and irredeemable, as perhaps he is. Ultimately, our assessment of the novel's realism depends on the believability of this vision. So it's not about the events. It's about the presuppositions of human life that make the events make sense to us. So to be sure, Welbeck is playing with his readers, toying with us. He's setting us a challenge. Dare we take any of this seriously? On the one hand, there's Francois' pessimism, which is really a matter of his self-disgust and hatred for humanity, sort of melding into one attitude. That was clearest in the second passage, um, the pilgrimage passage. On the other hand, there's Welbeck's own pessimism, that this experience of Francois' is really a human possibility in a time and place not so distant from us, and that this possibility is not one we can ignore just because we ourselves are content with love or marriage or religion or some other source of self-transcendence. So remember what I said about the two kinds of realism earlier. I claimed that realism in the novel, in the central sense, is realism not about specific human actualities, as if it were history, but about human possibilities that those actualities make salient. The mordant satire and the near-future setting ensure that submission, like Welbeck's other novels, falls somewhat short of realism in this narrower sense. I argued, too, that the political commentary is ultimately secondary. So, is Welbeck realistic in the broader sense? Is he, and this is the favorite word of many reviewers who admire him, is he prophetic? What I want to say is that even at its best, submission just draws us further into the muck that it characterizes as our condition. If we are persuaded by Welbeck's celebrated Balzacian flair for detail, and there that's Adam Schatz's description, if we're persuaded by that flair for detail that he's describing life as it is, and as we don't want it to be, we self-deceived readers, then I think our moral possibilities, our moral imagination contracts. We are not Francois, but we begin to think that we are smug and self-satisfied because we have avoided his fate. Sexual poverty has been his lot. Sexual domination lies in his future. We may not want that for ourselves, but we would be small-minded to deny it to others. That's the thought that animates these books. I think, and I don't have the time to pursue this as uh, in-depth as I would like, um, there's a very instructive point of comparison with Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, and I just want to make a couple of observations about that. That novel is an account of the making and the current perspective of someone who is a social failure, a recluse, someone who is seen as unfit to be loved, not only by others, but also by himself. At the outset, we are told in a very curious footnote at the start that while the subject matter of the novel is imaginary, social conditions in Dostoevsky's time entail that people like the narrator must exist, and in considerable numbers. He's not alone. Now, the point of this footnote seems to be that whether it is because of Chernyshevskian utopianism, utopian socialism, or the sheer numbing effect of bureaucratic life, mid-19th century Russian society, 
and the intellectual possibilities that are current within it are such that people can immiserate themselves in the way that underground man does. Yet at the end of part two of the novel, after the unnamed narrator recounts the trivial episodes of social rejection that led to the seclusion, a voice appears that is not the narrator's, that cuts the narrator off. The opening footnote provides us as readers with the motivation to bear with the narrator's cramped view of life for a while. The closing voice, which is evidently an authorial stroke cutting the narrator off, jolts us back to reality. I do not mean to say that Dostoevsky's meaning in these opening and closing moves is obvious, but he evidently provides us the distance for both sympathy with the narrator, chiefly sympathy with the narrator's dissatisfaction with the options for self-understanding that are given to him. But we're also given enough remove to see how far the narrator's misery is his own doing, a matter of his character. So I think Dostoevsky's satire, which at points is every bit as bitter, if not as pornographic as Welbeck's, Dostoevsky's satire does not leave us slouching towards misanthropy, though admittedly we may find it morally destabilizing. Notes from Underground is a dangerous book in that sense, but it is not small-minded. It reminds us powerfully not to be self-satisfied if we happen to be successful and happy. It remarks and explores the contingencies that go into that fact. The guillotine stroke of the author at the end, nevertheless, is an act that respects the openness to transcendence that the narrator has denied himself. Precisely in humiliating the narrator, Dostoevsky respects his humanity. In dwelling so fully within Francois's reverie at the end of submission, Welbeck paradoxically dismisses him, just as he dismisses us all, dismisses every person. The moral imagination I hold depends on an openness to the kinds of possibility that are being firmly closed here. And I close with an aesthetic point since I'm in verge of moralizing. The reason that Welbeck so often seems to write the same novel, despite the differences in character and plot, is that in his world there is really only one story, and that story is a council of despair that masquerades as the truth. Thank you. Something very interesting, 
diagnosis that is not off the mark about what can happen um, to people and what perhaps does happen to some people, especially those with these particular historical social family circumstances. But um, it's interesting that none of the characters, even the healthier ones in this book, have children. And yes, the birth rate is very low in, in France, but it's not zero. Um, and and, and the, the, so the, the possibility of even thinking that, that, that children could be part of life. You know, it's as if here was this generational injustice that was done by my mother to me, Michelle Welbeck. And this is it's fully autobiographical at this point. Um, therefore, there aren't, there, the motherhood is not a possibility. And I think where the readers get confused is there is you know, there's this declining birth rate and it shows that people aren't valuing this as part of their lives. And we might wonder why. We might want to think about does the state have any role in encouraging it or not. But, um, you know, it gets written off, um, right? Uh, this is where we're not just getting the self-disgust and the hatred of humanity of the narrator, but the idea that this is not a human actuality in our time and place, which is just false, right? There are some healthy families, even if you, Michelle Welbeck, didn't have one, or there might be. And, um, you know, it would be interesting to see this character run up against that. But instead, he meets people who are just... They're not narcissists in the way that he is. They're not all sexually obsessed, for instance. Um, but they're narcissistic in lots of different ways. So he meets a kind of, um, you know, a set of narcissists. And you might say, ah, so much the better for the satirical power of his novels. And I think that there is, some, there is something lost. You can have, you know, I think, uh, for instance, of um, Iris Murdoch is also someone who plays around with this idea of, of um, you know, a social group of people who are entirely narcissistic. 
Um, and in her most successful novels, there are always limits to this. There's always a rupture within that group that it, it, it's actually not self-sustaining. Um, but she did write one novel, A Severed Head, that has no non-narcissists in it. And it's just horrifying all the way through. Um, and I think it doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work to make the point because sort of re-emphasizing the, the point that you know, everyone's got these secret motives, everyone is manipulating each other, everyone is sleeping with each other in a severed head, including all the brothers and sisters and so on, um, that uh, there's, there's then no, there, we lose our ability to see it as satire anymore, in fact, because the satirical stance requires this distance, what I call the sympathetic distance, where we can both see, yes, this is a miserable human being, and he's responsible for his own misery in various ways, and social conditions are too, um, but we're not able to actually form the right kinds of judgments because we're just being, we're being pulled into this. And so what, I, what people see as fearlessly realistic, I'm saying, they're describing realism in this narrow sense. And I think it's, it's very, very unrealistic because it ignores the possibilities for us. And you said that to, say, the late 19th century uh, decadent novels that Francois spends his time studying is instructive. So when 
you know, um, he laments that he can't make the same choice that Louis did to, um, to go into uh, the abbey or the monastery and, um, and discipline himself in this way. And um, what's I interesting about that is that it's not that he doesn't see the aesthetic benefit, um, that there's a kind of, and I mean aesthetic in the, in the strong sense of, um, he, do, he doesn't see the benefit of the potential admirability of this kind of life. You know, he recognizes that. Um, but when he's faced between the desire to, to you know, so he, Francois, he, he sees, he, he says he loves going to lots, but then he's got to, he's got to smoke, so he, he goes outside. And I think that is the picture of, you know, there is a natural law theory here. It's just a natural law theory on which all we've got is these basic drives. And that, um, for instance, things like having a social life or having an intellectual life are ways that those get channeled. And it's, it's even cruder than Nietzsche's theory of psychological drives. It's cruder in the sense that, you know, even if Nietzsche wants to have this kind of reductive analysis of these things that are kind of behind our back motivating our behavior, he at least admits that you know you can you can you can you can come to occupy through cultural formation a stable position of you know really thinking that your artistic work is important when uh, or your intellectual work is important when you just want to occupy a certain place in the status hierarchy and committing yourself to the life of the intellect is the way of doing that. That's a caricature of Nietzsche. But Welbeck is even cruder than the caricature version of Nietzsche. Um, it's just that there are these kinds of eruptions. And there used to be a time, it's true, where the social order was such that um, these things could be kept in check. In particular, that um, you know, uh, before the sexual revolution, um, you know, all that women cared about was cooking really nice food and being sexually submissive to their husbands. And that that's the kind of you know that that kind of kept life going. Take that away, and all you've got is this kind of brute competition. And um, Francois, one of the ugly ones, is going to lose out in the competition unless there's some force of order that channels social structures to then back to, to sort of back his desires. So I think, you know, this question of is he diagnosing that we've ended up in this terrible situation? Yes. Um, he's picking up perhaps on the ways in which transcendence is absent to many people in, in modern life. Um, but the diagnosis is not you know, uh, how could we recuperate that sense of transcendence? It's that we've now realized that that was bullshit. Um, it was always bullshit. You know, Lise Malls could convince himself, but I can't convince myself of this. Um, because I'm seeing more clearly. And so, you know, the life is unmasked in this book and shown to be hollow in these ways. And that, that's not just Francois' disaffection, it's sort of, you know, the state we would all be in if we saw more truly. That's the part that I'm really chary of. I mean, am I being charitable at this point? I, I do worry about that because I find myself disgusted by the books, um, aesthetically and morally in various other ways. But um, I think even when read, you know, in this purely negative diagnostic mode. So there's no clear answer. It's not clear what the, the norms are. You still want the sense that there could be norms to find, and I think that's part of what goes out, is that those norms are just there to regulate desire in various ways. And the old ones don't function, and maybe, you know, if, if we had Sharia law, they would function better, and that's part of the joke of the novel, is of course no one wants that, but if you really want it, that's, that's the Welbeck's 
attitude towards his readers. He wants to shock them by, by telling them, you, you, what you, this is what you really want, and you're not willing to see it in yourself. And um, uh, so you know, he's taking the Islamophobia of French society and refracting it back on itself. But I don't, you know, for all the, you know, for all the clarity of his seeing what has gone wrong, the picture of the human that lies behind it is, is fundamentally broken in this way that I, I, I feel like I'm beginning to diagnose. I hope that responds to the concern. I'm curious about your experience you discussed as an individual uh, with reference back to your early mention of Plato's piece against narrative poetry in Republic 10. Uh, because that case uh, forms into two parts, so an individual one and a societal one, and societally, I think that the course of your argument draws the clear parallels to Plato's case, where the risk is that the, the wrong element in society is empowered to, to overpower the rightly ordered elements in society. So by the reaction to overpower that appeals to and disorders society as a whole. So one of the problems with this novel is that uh, so you know, if everyone uh, were equally disgusted, so it would be more anonymous in some sense. But because the critical response has been, at least in this, if not positive, so there is a nice part of the danger. But for someone who's um, you know, peaceful non-terms, soul is properly ordered, so, and experience is a kind of, of so appropriate moral disgust to this work. Is there an aesthetic grounds to why reading this novel is bad for us? The um, Plato's argument seems to have been that in order to get any pleasure from this work at all, we need to buy into the falsehood that it peddles for us, mm-hmm. instead of dividing our soul against itself. So is that part of what you see as the experience of discussion here, that you do get some kind of pleasure So the only properly ordered souls in the Republic are ones that live within a perfect society that, you know, um, that is acknowledged from the perspective of the Republic itself to be temporary and fragile. And so my version of Platonism doesn't see that as a human possibility. There's no stable, uh, stably achievable endpoint where we could be fully inoculated from the dangers of narrative literature. Um, but of course, that very fact also means that we have every reason to keep consuming it because um, uh, we aren't oriented to the truth by some external set of social conditions. And so in a way, this is our only, it's our only hope, it's all we've got is, our, you know, uh, Plato is very aware of this, that in the absence of the true story, all we have is a set of partial stories. And so, um, you know, the, the counsel to banish literature, which reappears in the laws, you know, it's, I'm not saying he doesn't take the idea seriously that, that these things should be um, scrutinized, but I do wonder if, you know, if we're trying to inhabit this platonic point of view, we would have to, we would have to condemn anything. So it's not a matter of saying you can't read this because your soul is in danger. 
I think the more, the, the sort of platonic attitude would be, well, maybe it's Augustine's attitude, right? So read what conduces to the truth and, and avoid what, what doesn't. Um, and uh, conducing to the truth might take the form of reading things that are false, right? So that we can, we can understand that in a, in, a, in a broader, generous sense as um, uh, making clear to us what the stakes might be. Um, I, I'm not even that much of a Platonist, ultimately. Well, I say that. I, you know, it, would the index be such a bad idea? Um, there, I said it in public. Um, yeah, I don't want to put I don't want to put submission on the index. Um, but I do think I do think the, the, the critical response, which is you know the Wildean response, it's well written. It points to these kinds of truths about ourselves. That's what I want to push back against. And the way to do that is to write better criticism and to show that those critics that they're wrong. Um, so that's the enterprise I take myself to be, to be engaged in. And um, I'm suspicious of my own reaction of disgust. And we, we should all be, because um, disgust is very, very socially formed. So there's no originary detector of the truth within us. There's no, you know, there's no rational part that could just access the story in its own without the cooperation of the lamenting and the grieving part, to use Republic Penn's language. So I think that, um, yeah, the, the wise reading of literature is a very dangerous business. And we can say that without giving up on thinking that um, a little bit more variety than was allowed into the Republic is a good thing. Is that? Yeah. Yes, thank you. Oh. I'd like to ask about um, your reference to the term prophetic that hmm. the church and some of the issues have used. Yeah. And maybe ask you to speculate about, um, or say, uh, about. Speak to the, the connection that there is one between that and the, the disgust that we're talking about. It almost sounds as though um, the, the disgusting or negative emotions, uh, that the act of unmasking has a kind of reality factor or prophecy effect um, that seems uh, that really interestingly critiqued and seems to. Um, be a constant presence in responses to roll back and also more broadly in our cultural moments. Uh, there, it's as though the, as you were giving your talk, I'm going to use a pop culture example, I was Please. thinking about the way people talk about the Game of Thrones series and the way that the presence of lots of murder and rape and incest and things like that get described as, oh, it's realistic, uh, which is a strange move to make. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm curious, and it seems like you're pointing to something similar here. I'm curious as to why you think that happens, why the, the affective disgust carries such a, a, an affective truth with it. Yeah, I think, I think we do have a um, great pleasure in unmasking. Mm -hmm. and, um, and part of that is revealing to ourselves the social formation of our own attitudes. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's enjoyable to see that I've been conditioned to respond this way, and then I can become first-personally aware of that response. And um, if, if it were just social conditioning all the way down, and there were no right way to think and no right way to be with others, 
then that would be what a lot of the pleasure of narrative art would be confined to in an important way. So a lot of this turns on whether, I don't want to talk about moral realism, but moral seriousness, you know, in the background, uh, yeah, if you think that there's something to be learned about yourself by observing your own reactions to something like Game of Thrones, but not something to, to be learned about how one ought to be, then that's going to seem like an achievement um, in, the, in the Game of Thrones case. This is funny because Molly and I were discussing Game of Thrones in the, in the break, so you're, you're, you're right down the channel that I'm pursuing. Um, and uh, again, I think... Um, and the other thing is that the evaluation of an aesthetic object has to take it, the whole object as, as its totality. And that's one of the complexities. So I think the, you know, the, sen the censorious type who wants to say, you know, here's this bit that we shouldn't let people see, um, that's different from how, exactly how is the significance of this, say, dark aspect of humanity being represented and significance in a, in a polyphonic way where there can be many voices about the same the same description you know, present in the narrative work, which outstrips any set of descriptions you can give of it. Um, it's going to be a very complicated matter to decide what that is. And, um, and again, this is where I think, actually going back to something we talked about yesterday, um, criticism and the writing of novels, it's sort of, it's, there's, a, there's a single discourse that we can, we can think of those as participating in. And I do also think in these kinds of tradition-bound terms about that, if that's helpful. Yeah. I'm curious how you take the criticism of Griswold's uh, conversion to capitalism at the end of his life as sort of uh, the, the criticism is that it's a sort of purely aesthetic move and perhaps in light of the novel, even narcissistic. Um, and I'm curious how you see that playing into the novel in relative terms of Walswell's potential conversion at the end of the novel, in that his conversion or the potential conversion, I should say, is seems to be less as a sort of aesthetic mirroring of his own conversion, and more of an almost um, resolution of material conditions that cause trouble for Moscow versus a sort of self-transcendence. And so I'm curious if, if you sort of how you look at those. Yeah, I'm, uh, in talking about this, I, I'm struck by the fact that Welbeck said that. Um, one way he thought of You have to take what he says in his interviews. As with all authors, they don't know what they're talking about. This is where Plato was really right. But even worse, Welbeck, like, you know, he's got a public persona that he tries to develop in his interviews, and he says contradictory things so that he gets more press and so on. But one thing he said is he, he thought about writing a novel where the conversion was successful. Francois' conversion to Catholicism was successful, and he found he couldn't. I think what that reveals is that um, uh, there is something deeply meant about the, the idea that um, you know, value is something we project onto the world, not something that we're ever vulnerable to, whether that value is aesthetic or religious uh, or moral. And so, you know, criticize Griezmann's all you want. Um, he found something unmanageable about his life, and then he yielded, perhaps you want to say, for the wrong reasons to this different way of life. Um, that's why I, tried, I started with the climactic scene, because I want to say this is not a different way of life for Francois. Um, right. Islamic France is, is just the, the better version of liberal France, where the liberal promise that you can live your life on your own and be happy 
um, in the sort of atomized, to use the English translation of um, elementary particles, this atomized way that Thomas mentioned. That can, that can be achieved in some possible future where we get the material conditions right, as you suggest. So I, I do think this, you know, um, I'm not saying that Welbeck is fully aware of this. He may be, but uh, I think we're supposed to find it ludicrous that anyone could convert um, if they didn't have these material inducements. So the, the thought of going into the monastery, you know, maybe it'll make you less unhappy because it will satisfy some excellent desires that you have. That's how that's represented. And so the pleasure of going to, to Lodz and, and to Compline, um that Francois, even Francois can recognize, that can't serve as motivation because he can only be motivated by these, these basically bodily appetites. Um, yeah, so I think there's, there's definitely something interesting in the comparison, but that's sort of the lesson that I, that I take from it. We have time for one more question. Thank you. Yes, Bob. I, I guess, in a way, um, if, if you, it's this point that I made earlier that the kind of social formation of desire is all there is okay. to our experience of the world. Um, and uh, so that's not, it, you know, it's instantiated through Francois' unhappiness um, and the self-undermining behavior. But the, the truth we're supposed to see is that, uh, that we're be, being led the alleged truth that we're being uh, led to see is a matter of um, seeing that as the only possibility that there could be. Um, and um, I think we're not given any, you know, it's not an argument, but we're not given any reason to think that that's, that's the only possibility. And there's something suspicious about the fact that, um, uh, you know, we don't get access to the mental life of any of the other characters. We don't see any sort of contrary case. Um, there's, um, you know, um, a sense that, yeah, you know, what one wants out of other people is that they provide for your desires. Um, and I think the, the attitude of the novel is, look, he's unmasking, right? And it's, it's the same pleasure of unmasking. And I think that is a, that's not just a partial view of, it, it aspires to be a total view of human life. And that's where I'm locating the, the difficulty with truth. Thanks. <laughs> 